Well, welcome back to the Think Education podcast. Uh, as ever, Judith and myself um, rambling about international higher education. Um, however, this time we're joined by uh, a colleague, I guess our furthest distanced colleague, probably um, is fair to say at the moment, um, uh, Douglas Proctor, who will be formally and uh, professionally introduced by, by Judith. One thing I would like to say quickly before that we do that is I got a little nervous when I, I heard, oh, we're going to have a guest from Australia. And I thought, I bet it's somebody from New South Wales. I bet Judith has gone literally to Australia to find a <laughs> Wales connection. Uh, nothing remotely against our, any colleague we have in New South Wales, but very pleasantly, um, we have a colleague joining us from Victoria. So that's a, that's a wonderful um, uh, variety in, in every sense of our, our podcast today. So, uh, Douglas, thank you in, in more ways than one. Um, and I know this comes off with Wales bashing on my part, and that's not true. I just I appreciate the, the uh, irony sometimes of what, what happens in our, our chat. So, Judith, uh, over to you for the, for the formal intro. Thank you very much, Chris. And of course, what I am now doing is writing down on my little pad, find somebody from New South Wales to come on next podcast. <laughs> uh, now, I'm delighted that um, Douglas is joining us uh, today. We had the, the pleasure of um, presenting at a, a conference together uh, earlier last, um, last year, and I've chatted a number of times about you know, international education. Douglas himself, with part of the formal introduction now, is a scholar practitioner in international higher education, received his PhD from the University of Melbourne. We're going to range around the globe now, by the way. I might just put Wales in there, even though it's not true. Um, but So PhD from the University of Melbourne um, and has held international higher education leadership roles in Australia and in, in Ireland. Um, which we'll come on to in a moment because I think there'll be some really interesting points there for that to, to, to discuss in terms of some differences and similarities. Um, Douglas is currently uh, Pro Vice Chancellor Global Engagement at Swinburne University of Technology. So obviously a very different time zone to um, certainly to my set, myself and maybe many people uh, tuning in, in today. Um, and oversees uh, Swinburne's global strategy in teaching, research and outreach across its campuses in both uh, Melbourne and East Malaysia. Uh, Douglas himself has, has written um, numerous uh, articles, uh, publications regarding uh, internationalisation, uh, including the one that he co-edited and authored with Laura Rumbly, the future uh, agenda for internationalisation in higher education with Ratledge in, in 2018. And this looked at some new perspectives on the future of um, HE uh, from a younger generation of scholars and, and practitioners. Um, Douglas has got a number of, of external roles as, as well, of course, been very well known in his field. He's honorary fellow um, of the Melbourne Centre for the Study of Higher Education at the University of Melbourne. And he's also currently chair of the European Association for International Education, EAIE Publications Committee and editor of uh, the EAIE Forum magazine. So, Douglas, welcome. Thank you very much uh, for, for, for joining us. Absolutely delighted that you're here. And I wonder if I might uh, start off with the first um, first question but do also just feel free to say anything quite frankly because this is the this is as formal as Chris and I get in these sessions when we try and be a bit disciplined and then we go wildly off on the tangent and very rarely rarely come back but I think particularly what I'm really interested in to hear about is your reflections on working you know really basically at other ends of the globe you know you've had the experience that you've had in Ireland and now, you know, you're back in Australia. So it would be really interesting just to hear from you a few of your reflections on some of the similarities and differences that there are in uh, living and working in Europe and then back in good old Oz. 
Well, look, thanks uh, so much, Judith and Chris, for the invitation to come and join you. And I'm delighted to um, to be here. Uh, it's a very different end of the day for me than it is for you. But then I think for those of us that work in international education, we surf time zones with a relative ease. Um, so, and again, I'm with apologies for Judith for having to read out that kind of long bio, uh, which makes me wonder whether the aspiration that Laura Rumbley and I had about being a next generation of kind of international education education leaders can really be the case because maybe we're no longer that younger generation. Uh, but no, look, it's, it's a real pleasure to join you. I've um, really enjoyed listening to the podcast over the last period of time. Uh, I think maybe for all of us, we've, we listen to more podcasts in the thick of lockdowns than we do now. And, and again, I'm struggling to find time for my you know, curated set of podcasts that I really want to listen to. But the, the one that, that you're recording is, I think, fascinating. And for me, as somebody with a lot of um, uh, involvement with transnational education, I think it's been really interesting to hear people with such experience of it actually discuss and talk about that. Um, so, yes, I had the wonderful opportunity between 2017 and 2020, 2021 uh, to work in Ireland. And I worked at University College Dublin, where I was the director of UCD Global, so the international office there. Uh, and it was a real eye-opener to come from an Australian international education background and end up in a, in a very European one in a different context. And again, Brexit was part of that context, of course. Uh, Donald Trump was then in the White House. Uh, so again, there was a particular Ireland stuck in the middle there between uh, the UK uh, and uh, the US and with all of those strong cultural ties to the US. Uh, it was a really fascinating time to be there. Um, in reflecting on your question, I think the fundamental difference was around the number of layers of government. As to Australia has three layers of government, uh, federal, uh, national, federal, as we say, uh, state uh, and um, and local. And we talked about New South Wales. I'm not in New South Wales. I'm in the state of Victoria. Um, and, and of course, Ireland only has two levels of government. It has local government and then national government. There is a, a middle layer. And I think that really changed then the way that international education was approached. There was... Um, there wasn't uh, that kind of... Um, so it, here in Australia, for example, each of the states has its own kind of focus on international education. In my state, the state of Victoria, uh, international education is the largest industry, not just the largest export industry, but the largest industry in the state, uh, buffeted by the winds of COVID, of course. But again, we've received, therefore, significant support from the state government around the things that we do. There is a study Melbourne brand. There are study Melbourne hubs now in different parts of the world and a whole architecture around that that didn't exist in Ireland the same way. Um, one of the other things I think is that Australia has a very heavily regulated international education sector. We have national legislation around international students, and I can bore you at another time about the ESOS Act and the National Code of Practice. Uh, we have very strong migration settings as well. And these things, when I moved to Ireland, were um, not absent, but different, lived very differently um, because they were not, there was not the same focus on them. And I think, um, you know, in reflecting on the fundamental difference in Australia, international education is perceived industry. And therefore, as an industry, and we talk about it as an industry, an industry, there is then lobbying, lobbying of different groups to government and to different layers of government. Uh, and it's a complex industry, whereas I think in Ireland, international education was seen as a sector not as an industry. And therefore, there wasn't the same architecture around it in relation to policy and the like. It was inherently more complex. I, the thing that I discovered in arriving in Ireland was the difference between an EU international student and a non-EU international student. No such distinction exists uh, in Australia. And that was fascinating to me to see how the recruitment activity was all targeted towards non-EU students uh, because they paid a higher fee and yet so much of the mobility, the short-term mobility was Erasmus focused and therefore focused on EU mobility. And so again, some of those kind of, um, kind of internal uh, distortions in the system. So again, those are the, those are the key things that I kind of um, 
that I kind of really wanted to point to. Uh, it's been fascinating and coming back the other way, coming back to Australia, and I came back just before a lockdown, which is, of course, what happens, um, and then kind of getting back into this environment, which feels more rigid now in some way. Ireland was a bit more negotiable, uh, but again, it's more rigid because of that industry focus and because of the scale of the operations. Um, that's really interesting, Douglas, and it really strikes me that, um, you know, the the impact of government, be it be it state, be it federal, be it local, you know, on how you're able to affect your internationalisation plans across the institution will clearly have, have a different level of impact depending on where you are, won't it? And I, I suppose one other thing I'm interested to, to hear about is I think one of the challenges that we've got in the UK, um, it, uh, not necessarily in Wales, but certainly um, in the UK more broadly, uh, is uh, are the different attitudes within government towards internationalisation. You know, we've got an international education strategy, we've got a champion in, in Steve Smith, we've got clear targets for internationalisation, we're, we're really now looking within that at, at um, raising the importance and level of TNE within that, for example. But at the same time then, uh, there'll be other parts of the government, you know, and, and maybe therefore there are parts of our government, I think, that do see it as an industry, that see the importance and the value of it, not not just in terms of, of finances, but also the cultural value of it. But then there are other parts of of, of government which uh, only seem to focus on on the challenges with regard to international students, for example. I mean, we've had a huge surge in the numbers of students coming from India and Nigeria due to the opening up of our graduate route, which, of course, you, you never closed down, I don't think. We certainly did for a period of time. Thought it was a good idea, realised it wasn't. It took us several years to, you know, open it up again. But that with it has brought its challenges, not least from some of those, um, some of those countries. Uh, students tend to bring their dependents with them as well. And so that has an impact on the community. And, and on the one hand, there's a positive impact, of course. They bring their families. They, 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 they live somewhere. They work somewhere. They contribute to the economy significantly. But of course, they also need schooling and they need support. Um, so it's uh, so I'm just finding it myself at, at the moment in looking at government attitudes, quite a difficult one because it's almost sort of binary opinions that you'll you'll get even in the same sentence. And I'm interesting to hear about whether it's similar with yourself. So I think uh, I think one of the fundamental differences between the UK and Ireland, putting those two together. And Australia is that Australia is a migrant nation. I'm a migrant to this country. I was born in the UK, moved here in 1999. Um, and so I think it's, I'm going to maybe get the stat wrong, but one in two Australians has a parent born overseas or is born overseas themselves. So again, there is a different understanding here. I'm not saying that we have a beautifully kind of harmonious kind of, you know, migration and kind of settings and everything. But again, there is you know, everybody's got some heritage from somewhere else. And I think that changes the settings around some of the conversations that you might see in the UK. Um, what is similar between the UK and Australia, I think, is a very clearly articulated set of interactions with government. So we have a ministerial council for international education, which involves ministers from all of the relevant ministries, so not just education, but from home affairs and from the and foreign affairs and trade and the various ministries that are involved. And I think the International Education Association of Australia, the IEAA, has been very successful over the last number of years in actually ensuring that the conversation with government, the advocacy to governments in the plural, so federal and state, is effective. Um, I think um, that was very different in Ireland. There just wasn't a conversation with other departments other than the Department of uh, what was it called? Further and higher education, science and research. Um, now, there was. There was a framework for that kind of higher level conversation, but it wasn't very effective. Uh, and again, it's a much smaller country. And, and again, it sounds like a, it is a cliche, but people in Ireland know each other. It's a small, you know, saying to my children and moving back to Melbourne, I said, we're moving back to a city that is larger than the country that we've been living in. 
So there are under 5 million people in the Republic of Ireland, and there are more than 5 million people in the broader Melbourne, Melbourne broadly cast. Um, you know, so that, that necessarily changes things. So again, things happened in Ireland because you knew people and you were able to pick up the phone to people and they answer the phone. That doesn't happen in our larger countries in quite the same way because we've got these stronger, more articulated frameworks about how, how people talk to each other. I mean, when the pandemic hit, the seven universities in Ireland the international directors of those universities met relatively frequently. And when the pandemic hit, we moved those meetings to be weekly. And we were very quickly talking directly to government about the pandemic responses that were irrelevant to international students. Now, I know that happened in other countries as well. But in Ireland, it happened in a much more fluid way than I think it probably happened in this country. In this country, the states got involved, different states closed borders at different times. So again, there wasn't the national conversation was not held by international directors. Whereas in Ireland, because of the size of it, that national conversation about policy responses was directly informed by the universities themselves. So do you think on thinking on that note then, um, Douglas, about the, the sort of sheer size and scale of of where you're living, where you are now in in, in, in Victoria and in, and in Melbourne, um, I'm thinking of where you were in Ireland. Does it, in some way, therefore, make um, make it make it seem in in Australia sort of less international? Almost that, you know, it, when when you're somewhere like Ireland, it's a little bit like I guess Wales in in many ways, actually. You know, um, yeah. Sorry, Chris, I'm shaking my head. Uh, but, you know, we've, uh, we're proud of being in Wales. We love being in Wales and we've got our little flags and it's very important to us and being Welsh is very important to people who live there. But actually, you've got to interact with other people and you've got to interact, you know, globally um, because, you know, because you're small and, you know, you, you can't, you've got to collaborate more in, in many ways. And, and, I, and it often just strikes me with somewhere, and I often think this, interestingly, about... The United States, but I don't often think it about Australia. Um, that it might even it might make it more insular in some ways, just because it is so large. And even just to talk to people in, an, in another state seems like talking to somebody in another country. Well, and that's right. So large and so far removed from the rest of the world. So you know, there's a very famous kind of you know um, reflection on the tyranny of distance and the fact that actually it can be very hard in Australia to feel that connection with the rest of the world, despite the irony that so many of us are from there. What I think was so fascinating in Ireland was that so many people connections in the US because of the Irish diaspora. And I was fascinated recently with Joe Biden's visit to uh, the island of Ireland. And he went to the north and he came then also to the Republic. And I know there was quite a kerfuffle in the UK press about how much time Joe Biden had spent. But those connections are so tangible. Every Irish person that I met had relatives in the US. Every U so many US, 30 million US people self-identify as Irish. And they all know which town, which village they're from. Those connections in an international education context were incredible. When we went to the US and we would go and talk to people, they all just had the love that they have for the homeland is so strong whether they've visited or not. And of course, at UCD, I would say to colleagues when I came back to Australia, oh, guess which our largest population of international students was? And they go, oh, from China. I said, no, 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 it wasn't China. Oh, well, maybe from India. No, no, no. US. US students. Full degree and study abroad was much larger than then China and India and other countries of note. And that's just because of Ireland's place in the world. And I think I, as a former, as, as a I am still a UK citizen, but I hold an Australian passport as well. I do find, find it quite fascinating then to watch the English, I will say English maybe rather than British, response to Ireland and its connection with the US. But again, Ireland's less than 5 million people and there are 30 million US citizens that self-identify as Irish. And they'll tell you, I'm Irish. I mean, that's just, that's something that is, is very hard for us to understand, I think, in a UK kind of context. So. Chris? Yeah, no, uh, it's funny. I was when Judith asked the last question about whether you know perhaps Australia was was in a sense less international because of the size or the the you know as you say the isolation. It it made me reflect on on Dubai where I I live and work and we I don't 
Dubai is, is Dubai in particular as part of the UAE is obviously heralded as being very, very international. I mean, 90 something percent of us are from somewhere else other than here. So it's a, it's a very, very diverse place. But in the same way, we don't often think of it as being international. We just think of it as being normal, you know, in a sense. So my, my, my seven year old daughter is in class in school. Nobody else looks like her. And very few people look like anybody else, right? It's just a multicultural, multi-diverse, you know, population. Um, and it was, I was trying to work out how I was framing my understanding of what you said and what Judith had said regarding Australia, where, as you say, the, that statistic about the, the parents and the identity and the migrant nation and, and the fact that, you know, you've institutionalized internationalization to the point where it is... I mean, isn't it sort of second to mining as as the nation, national industry? I mean, it's it's a massive area within the within the country, and I was wondering how how international students see themselves within that, um, because we've talked about this in the past about that sense of identity, right? You know, and, and obviously we've all got experience at branch campuses, and sorry, all of us in this meeting uh, conversation, not all everybody listening, but you know, we've got experience at branch campuses and, and what that means and where you're from and what you're studying, what that means. And I was just curious, you know, if, if all those Americans coming from America into Ireland are effectively in, like Biden going home in a sense, right? Um, what that feels like for an international student within a sector that is so big like Australia. Um, and yet, as you said, so far away, it's not far away from Asia in, in the sense, right? It's, it's, it's a seven, eight hour flight, but I mean, it's a far away from say the, the, the European conversation. Well, one of the things that I think is fascinating here is when we receive visitors to our campus uh, and they walk around and they might often say, oh, you have so many Asian students, for example. And I'm always very quick to point out, well, don't just assume that the Asian face that you're looking at is an international student, because actually the makeup of our community is incredibly diverse. And therefore, you cannot, in an Australian context, look at somebody who looks as though they're from somewhere else and think they must be an international student. You cannot make that assumption whatsoever. Now, this leads to all sorts of dilemmas with um, um, pedagogy. We have, you know, recent migrants to Australia who are domestic students and then maybe their English isn't as good. And then academics think that maybe there must be an international student who didn't get the right IELTS. So, I mean, all of these little things around the corners. But what it means is, I think, coming back to your question, Chris, is that when you're an international student on one of our campuses, is that you see faces that look like you and you meet people who are like you and who appreciate the same things that you do, whether it's the food or whatever. Again, if you were to come to Swinburne's campus in Melbourne, the strip of shop near us, you can get every single Asian food type under the sun. So again, if you, you're not going to find wanting if you've just arrived from Vietnam or from Malaysia or from China or from somewhere else. So on the one hand, that's at a surface level, I suppose, isn't it? There's that kind of feeling of, um, of being kind of part of here. Um, what I think is maybe more compelling is to think about just how embedded that industry is within the national understanding of who we are. Mining is embedded in our thinking. It's what we do. We dig stuff up at the ground and we sell it. But when the borders closed with COVID, the federal government at the time, which was the government of the right, did not give any financial support to the universities, even though it knew that the international student revenue that was brought in by the international students was fundamental to the running of those universities. So what's happened in this country during through COVID was massive downsizing and large layoffs. Because in the end, the international students didn't come. We, our borders were closed. We had to teach them remotely. Not as many signed up. Um, and that is still being felt. Now, we have a, a new government now, a government of the left, uh, different kind of conversation with that government already. But this tells me, and again, I was outside of Australia at this time when this was happening, but it tells me that our public understanding of international education as a valuable sector is not there in the way that it is with tourism or, or or mining or the other kind of sectors. Because again, nobody, I mean, who came to the support of the universities during COVID when they were having to lay off staff? Not many. I remember coming back to Australia from Ireland and talking about the all oh, this terrible thing and the borders being closed. And somebody said to me, but all these foreigners are bringing in disease. Now, again, very un-kind un of informed view, but that was what was happening here. The borders were closed to keep the disease out. 
Um, so again, you know, I, even though we're this very multicultural society and everybody comes from somewhere else and everybody has a dual identity, we're all Australian, those of us that have lived here for a while, and we all come from somewhere else as well, we all have another identity. I don't think there's a really deep embedded value of international education in the work that we do. And I think that's part of my responsibility to um, our sector, I'll use the word sector rather than industry, is to be the advocate for what we do, not only for the money that it brings in, the jobs that it creates, and you know, but for the transformational thing that we're doing for our international students coming in, but also for our domestic students that we're sending out. You know, and I think as universities that we, the Australian media tends to look at this as only as a as a financial thing. It's about money. Um, and I can't put my hand on my heart and say it's not about money. But actually, there's this whole other thing that we're trying to do as well. We're trying to do the best research in the world, which means working with other people in other countries. We're trying to you know, change the life course of young people by giving them an understanding and a global outlet that they wouldn't otherwise have. And again, those softer arguments sometimes I think get a bit lost. So. I was going to ask you, actually, then, you sort of started to answer it there, Douglas, about, you know, the uh, often in the, the community there will be a certain perception of the universities that are either in their locality or more broadly, won't there? And, and, I, and I guess, you know, it's the responsibility of the university and then universities more broadly to be able to be communicating to the local community but the national community as well the worth of the institution you know and and the importance to to those people that live on its doorstep as well as as those that you know are impacted more broadly and as you say you know we, we've we've just we've just come through you know the biggest global health crisis that well one hopes we will ever live through um but uh, and and the only reason we are now able to fly to places again to leave one country and go into another country is because of the collaboration that that brought forward you know um vaccines and things that, that made sure there wasn't any one individual that did that it was something that was a truly collaborative global effort wasn't it so you've got something massive like that that people but also but if you've got a university very often on your doorstep i don't know whether um, and how this is this is dealt with uh, so much in Australia, but you know how we make sure that we're communicating to to the, the people in the locality. You know, not that the, the university is their university is part of their environment. You know, yeah. how open is it? How how much can they in, interact with it? And I suppose, therefore, a question in some ways is: Do you bring together the the civic engagement side of a university and what's happening locally? with the international side and communicate that in in a in a in a in a in a city such as Melbourne. Yeah. Well it's a really good question, Judith, because that term civic engagement is one that I see used a lot in the UK. But it's not a term that we directly use here. We maybe talk about community engagement. Obviously we don't use the same terminology. Um, I, I think my general feeling is that we don't do this as well as we could do in relation to the international programmes that we run. Um, and I think that's something that I've been trying to do in my various roles over in different institutions is to try and ensure that when we talk to our community, we talk about all of the international things we do as well, because they're of relevance to who we are as an institution. Um, and I think we don't. I don't think we tend to do that very well. It was funny, working at, at University College Dublin in Ireland, so UCD hosts the National Virus Reference Laboratory for Ireland and has done for a long time. So when COVID hit, uh, it was pretty hot on our campus because the person who was the head of that virus reference laboratory was immediately on the National COVID Task Force. And, and again, so there was that real sense of, well, our university is bringing the academic expertise to this problem that is in our community. Uh, and I think that translation, and again, and doing so within an international kind of context, and of course the National Virus Reference Laboratory was working with other counterparts in other countries, so there was this reference to this international collaboration. I don't know that we highlight 
our international connections sufficiently in our local communities here. Our state government certainly is looking to do that because they have a real interest in this, our federal government as well. But at local government level, I don't think that's the core of the conversation that we have with them. Yeah, it's uh, it's always going to be a challenge, I think, that one, isn't it, to try and bring those sort of different sides together. Chris, I don't know if you well, want no, to I, come in. Yeah, here. I mean, this is, this is an issue we've had We've had conversations with um, other colleagues in the past, haven't we? And it, it's, you know, and it goes back to Douglas, your point, which I take very well, that, you know, internationalization should not purely be about the finances, but of course has to be about the finances to an extent because of just the realities of, uh, of university. And the difficulty is when, when international students are, are seen as that income stream, and, and diversity is then sometimes seen as a way of diversifying income stream or at least protecting the risk against the singular uh, source. We, in a sense, see international students as commodities. We, we package them as in a particular way and, and we, can, we can measure the diversity of their providence by numbers, but that's not an internationalization function in terms of the student experience or engagement. And it's not as as a direct impact in the community. So, you know, there's, there's what happens in the classroom from the pedagogical perspective, and you, you talked to that already, and, and you know, how, how that, how we integrate, we had conversations with, with Mark Garrett previously about this and how, you know, students can be integrated or, or, or not, as the case may be. But beyond that, how, you know, Judith and I spent quite a lot of time in, in I guess, our upcoming book about how universities engage with their community. And that's a case of the institution itself, but also the people within the institution. And, and predictably now, people within institutions are becoming more and more international in their own right. And therefore, their community impact becomes more international in its potential. And we've been, struggling is the wrong word, but we've been talking about this for a long time and not really got very far beyond talking about it for a long time. Um, and, uh, and, you know, but it's fascinating about those you know, whether we call them values or we call them identity or we call them beliefs, but, you know, a university is constructed based on a certain criteria, often based on where it is and what it offers and the courses it delivers and, and the mission it serves within that immediate community. But as that university typically internationalizes, how does it retain that, that sense of identity or how does it evolve that identity and how does it continue to serve its community? Which, as you said, particularly in your case, the community outside your office is multi, 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 multinational already. Um, it's, it's a, I think it's a fascinating... Hey Chris, I, yeah. I always find it really interesting, this question of community. So if, we, if I were to walk around this university and ask, who is our community? I would get lots of different answers. Um, some people say, well, it's the community of people on our campus. Mm. And some people say, well, it's the community of people on our campus and their alumni as well. And then other people say, well, it's the local community. But my definition of community is much broader than that. Uh, because again, this university has communities around the world. And it's not just alumni. Uh, there are alumni around the world. But we have a branch campus in East Malaysia that we've had for 23 years. So again, we're not just, again, we're not just an Australian university. We're an Australian university that's been operating in Kuching in Sarawak uh, with a, a branch campus for a really long period of time. That should be part of our identity mm. and our community. Uh, and again, what looking, I arrived here just towards the tail end of COVID. So looking at what COVID did, I mean, it kind of broke. And we kind of, everyone just kind of went home and did their own thing. And again, now we're trying to kind of reconceive of, well, where, where does this Sarawak operation fit in, which is relatively independent, you know, in many ways run kind of fairly independently. Uh, you know, how does this fit into our understanding of who we are today? Mm. Um, and I was delighted. I mean, we had a new vice chancellor during COVID. And uh, if you're a vice chancellor and you've got a 20 odd year old branch campus, you'd probably normally go there pretty quickly. But then this vice chancellor couldn't even come to our campus because she lived five over five kilometres away and we had a five kilometre lockdown. <laughs> so it took her two years to get to our branch campus overseas because the borders were closed. So again, how odd is this? You know, so again, I think those conceptions of what do you mean by... I, I know that if I talk to colleagues in other units... I'm often, and maybe I'm the pedant and the academic in me, kind of saying, what do you mean by 
community. And when they talk about we have three campuses, I'm there saying, no, no, we actually have four campuses. We have one in East Malaysia. But again, it's not visible to people in the same way. We don't, not every unit of the university lives that campus. I live it, I'm on the board, and I, you know, I've been to its graduations, and I work with the, the, the person who runs the campus all the time. You know, it's very visible to me. Um, but yeah, I, I find that kind of interesting. It comes down to questions of identity as an institution and how you translate that identity into your community. Um, and I think these are complex questions, aren't they? They are. And I wonder, actually, I mean, whether or not we, while fully accepting that we need a greater understanding of this, almost within the context of what an academic institution is, judge this too harshly, because quite often academic departments across the corridor don't talk to each other. Right? There's, there's often not that much integration or awareness within the institution itself, let alone a campus that is five kilometers or dare we say 500 or 5,000. You know, there's, there's, I think there's, there's sometimes less integrative identity and, and possibly if we talk to different people within a university, what's your sense of your institution's identity? We'd get very, very different answers depending on, on who we spoke to. And, um, and as you say, that's what makes it such a complex and we, we sort of paper over it with big words like community and, and the sort of catch-all that means whatever or nothing, depending on the, on the context. Good, so we've, we've got no further to understanding, but hey, that was a that really interesting <laughs> reflection. So pre- yeah, appreciate that, yes. But what we've got now is somebody else to join us in having that conversation yes. about yeah. actually not knowing where we're going with it. You mentioned about your branch um, campus, uh, Douglas, and I was going to ask you, about that and and your your thoughts just more broadly on branch campuses or international campuses or overseas campuses or whatever we're meant to call them um, these days. Terms go in and out of fashion uh, more than um, clothing does, don't they? But they come back. Uh, and I'm, I'm wondering whether... Um, I, I felt myself prior to COVID that probably the, the day of the the branch campus or the day of establishing a bricks and mortar separate campus for a university seemed to be on the wane somewhat. I mean, there was a, there were a huge number of developments over many years, weren't there? I mean, and, and Chris, you know, has, has been and is and part of those and, and has been part of those himself um, for a long time. But I just felt, I felt they were waning somewhat. And then it seemed to be that the, as a result of the kind of way in which we had to operate within COVID and having bases overseas and, you know, having those, even, even at its most basic and prosaic level like that, seemed to raise their profile and importance more. And, um, I mean, do you, do you think that? Do you think that, that probably the branch campus, in terms of developing new ones, not about obviously changing ones that people have got, but, you know, the thought of, oh, goodness me, shall, you know, shall we establish a campus overseas seemed to be something that that was on the decline but seems to be coming back again um so my sense is that there is still a lot of appetite for transnational education uh but i don't certainly in australia but i don't think it's in the branch campus space the bricks and mortar branch campus space Mm. um and again you know australia went through a whole period of um conflation of its dne when our um um, regulatory body at the time the australian universities quality agency started to do audits of internationalization with a mandatory topic on internationalization um it was interesting to see a number of universities kind of remove their focus on tne and actually just start to move in a different direction now again not everybody did and there are some we our regulatory body is now called texa the tertiary education quality and standards agency and there are many of us still that operate tne in a very highly regulated environment uh, either in branch campus style or in non-branch campus style so you I mean, know we have swinburne has tne so non-branch campus tne in vietnam Western Malaysia, uh, Sri Lanka, other places. We have as many students enrolled in those other forms of TNE collectively as we do on our branch campuses, 23 years old. Um, so again, I think we see those as being complementary. Um, we're, of course, all keeping a very eagle eye on India and what is happening in India. I was just going to ask you about that. Um, and again, you know, there are a couple of Australian universities that have taken up a very early opportunity to establish 
a presence. I was at campus in Gift City in Gujarat, um, and we're all watching that very closely. Of course we are. Uh, are those going to be large bricks and mortar things? I don't necessarily know that they are, but I'm not close enough to be able to say that. Um, so I, I answer your question, Judith, I think that, that that bird has probably flown. You know, if you look at, I mean, RMIT has its Vietnam campus, Swinburne has a large TNE partnership in Vietnam, but not a campus. RMIT Vietnam is 22 years old. Swinburne Sarawak is 23 years old. They're, they're long-standing things that have been built and nurtured and fostered over a long period of time and a, and a complex. I mean, Sarawak is not just teaching. It is teaching and its research and its research training and its industry engagement is all of those things. Of course it is. Um, and of course, the exciting thing for us is that then with Indonesia deciding to move its capital from Jakarta to a new site in East Kalimantan, well, that's just across, across the jungle from Kuching, which is where our Sarawak campus is. Now, you can't get through that jungle very easily at the moment. Uh, but, you know, again, the keeping for us, keeping our eye on the... Um, kind of regional kind of politics and what's going on, we think it's actually a good time to have a branch campus in, in East Malaysia and then to, you know, to be nurturing that again. But we're not looking, we're certainly not looking to establish another campus like that. Well, just a couple of, of extra points then on, on this one, because I'm, I'm always interested in talking to people that have got long established branch campuses, because I, I, I think in when they, they were first created, you know, one of the benefits people would say would be the opportunity to enhance student mobility, for example, mm -hmm. that it would give an opportunity for the students registered at the home campus or however you might term it and, and go and go and visit that campus. Um, so that was one one advantage. And then another advantage was that, that, were, that people would say, well, you know, if we have a, a branch campus in country X, then obviously we've got students going to that from that country and beyond, um, but that will raise our profile within that region and therefore then probably we'll see more students coming from that region back to the home campus. Thinking about both of those and thinking about Sarawak, has that, has that, has that happened? You know, is there mobility between campuses? And indeed, have you found more students, therefore, then from that locality coming to Melbourne just because your yeah. profile has increased? Yeah. The short-term mobility thing was really very dynamic pre-COVID. Um, so we had good flows of short-term mobile students, both from uh, Melbourne going to Sarawak for short periods of time and then the other way around. Um, I mean, we've really only been running our outbound mobility program since the middle of last year uh, and flights are expensive. And so, again, that we're still building that program again and trying. Literally, I was talking today to my uh, mobility director about what types of incentives we put in place to get students to go back to Sarawak. And we are able to draw on a certain amount of government funding. We have some uh, government funding for mobility within the Indo-Pacific. It's not the Erasmus scheme, uh, but, you know, it's kind of it's a regional mobility scheme. So, again, you know, there are ways and means of doing that. Um, in terms of uh, that campus and how it then supports our broader positioning, I think it's I think it does. I think it's complex. Um, so again, you know, the campus that we have in Sarawak is attracting students not only from Malaysia, but also from other parts of the world. We need to coordinate the messaging around that recruitment because we don't want to have lots of people recruiting in the same markets, some for, to come to Melbourne and some to go to Sarawak and maybe some to go to our other TNE sites. And again, they all have slightly different value propositions. They're all Swinburne degrees. Uh, they're all at different price points, of course. And, you know, so again, but that's fine. And we've been doing a body of work to try and ensure that we can actually say one Swinburne, but lots of different opportunities. Uh, and actually say, you know, well, if you maybe want to study a Swinburne degree, but you can't afford to come to Australia, then actually we have a, 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 an opportunity at a different price point in a different, in a cheaper place, but it's still the same Swinburne degree. Um, now, again, if you want to get post-study work rights in Australia, you need to come and study here, and then that's a different price point again. So I, I think, you know, that's a complexity in our recruitment landscape. Uh, certainly... We are very well known within the region for that campus um, and for our other TNE activities as well. 
Um, so again, I think that I, I, I can put my hand on my heart and say that in terms of the university's profile and reputation, that this, these TNE operations support that. Uh, the question is how we then leverage that for gain, whether it's the gain is the students coming to Melbourne or it's in our research relationships or something. Those are other sometimes more tricky questions, I think. Thanks very much, Douglas. Chris, do you want to come in here on it? I think we're going to have to start to let think about winding up and let, letting Douglas go soon because otherwise, it, I mean, it's all, it was dark when we started talking <laughs> to him. Yeah, no. it's seriously dark yeah. out there now. Well, I, I, I cycle to campus, so I've got the lights on my bike. So you know, I'll be okay getting home. <laughs> yeah. No, uh, it's this issue that you know you bring up, Douglas, about the um, how uh, the branch campuses are are integrated, even just from a perception perspective, into the the whole uh, identity of a university. Um, I have some experience with this too, also including you know in a, in a Malaysia based um, and. Uh, you know, we'd often have issues with students, you know, this is a long time ago, but saying, well, I, I don't want the name of the country on the degree because it's then going to be seen as lesser than wherever the home, you know, quote unquote, is is located. And, and university did quite a lot of work to, exactly as you're talking about, to say, you know, one university, three locations, you know, so rather than, but then again, it, it's um, when you start to see the, the different price point, which is obviously seen as an advantage, can also be seen as a negative because it's like, well, then does that mean it's 40% less value? You know, if it's just because it's cheaper, how does that, that alter the perceptions? And, and I think that it comes down to a lot about the communication, right? And, and how we explain um, and situate these different entities within their location, but within the whole. Um, and I mean, obviously that cuts across teacher training and curriculum and quality assurance and, you know, every sort of aspect that we possibly have. But um, it's so fundamental to, to how we need to develop internationalization that, you know, you can be wherever you are and, and study um, with opportunity, right? So, well, when I think about the push you know, the push on our campuses to decolonize the curriculum, yeah. uh, which, you know, is stronger in some corners of campus than it is in others. And you think about the relatively colonial models that we have employed as universities to establish these campuses abroad or the TNE sites or the in-country offices. It's not only in teaching, it can be yeah. in our admin operations as well. And I've been quite critical in my kind of writing and presentations about whether we're actually, uh, you know, uh, and it's uncomfortable for Australia to consider that it might be operating in a colonial way because we were the colony, you know. So again, you know, that, that, but again, I think this really needs thinking about, you know. Uh, and I, my, um, I suppose, endeavour over the last several years has been to give more and more authority um, to the in-country operations, whether they're teaching or whether they're kind of admin, and actually have them as real drivers and decision makers in what's going on rather than as a satellite, which is controlled from home base. Uh, because again, I don't, I mean, I'm on the board of um, Swinburne Sarawak, and, but I, I do not claim to know every single thing about Malaysian government policy and about then the state of Sarawak and its own particular place in the constitution of, the, of Malaysia. And like, again, you know, I'm not an expert in these things. And so, you know, it, it's not a command and control, um, I think, in that kind of a sense. It's really around a collaboration with another entity. So the, the, the branch campus that we run is actually a partnership with the state government of Sarawak. Mm. Um, so, you know, the, the premier of the state is then the pro-chancellor and the chair of the council. And, you know, so again, it's a very intimate relationship with the state government in Malaysia. And, and that's been a wonderful thing for us. Um, and again, I hope that we have learned as much from it as they have. I hope that it's rubbed off in both ways. And that's that's often the key, isn't it? How do we translate it back to the the other campus? Um, yeah, exactly. Sorry, Judy, I, I didn't mean to, to cut in front of you. No, well, I was just I was just going to to also now then uh, ask uh, ask Douglas the final a final question, uh, and but it also relates to the to the title of your previous book, Douglas: The Future Agenda for Internationalisation which, of course, because it came out in 2018, was pre-COVID. Where now do you think for the future of internationalisation in higher education? Where, where are we going now? What, what might happen in this intervening few years? 
That's that's such a wonderful question to answer with the clock ticking on our interview because that could go, go for a long time. I suppose um, I'm going to answer that in 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 half a way. I don't use the word internationalisation in my professional work. I don't use it on campus. I might have a conversation with an academic about the internationalisation of their curriculum, but only if they bring me into it. I don't use the word because I feel as though it is a word that distances. And when I did my PhD and I interviewed academic staff about their international activities, um, I never I never used the word internationalisation. Um, so again, I think that's challenging that we work in a field which has a term that is a distancing term and people don't necessarily understand. So I use all sorts of other words. I ask people, oh, so what do you do internationally in your work? And, you know, what are the international dimensions of the things that you do? And, you know, uh, because I think I think you get a lot more out of it. So maybe one of the futures of internationalization is to not use the word. Um, again, I'm a PDC for global engagement. It's just as challenging. What does global engagement mean? You can spend hours talking about that as well. Um, I, I think... Um, I'm going to be a cynic for a moment. I think that the very short term in this country about internationalisation is about uh, financial recovery. So I think for a country that does have a strong focus on international student recruitment anyway, that would tend to think that that's the centre of what we do, that's very much the focus at the moment. And that's because of the things I said earlier in this podcast around government, no government funding during COVID, lots of redundancy layoffs, big restructures. So there's, there's, a, there's a rationale there. So the question is, are we building back better? Um, I'd love to say that we were, but I'm not necessarily convinced that we are. Um, what I find fascinating, coming back to your first question is, international student recruitment was important in Ireland. Of course it was. Uh, but I don't think it was at the centre of the global engagement endeavour. I actually think the student experience for domestic and international students, and and sorry, and the stu- and experience for academic staff in their own international engagement in their research, that was really at the centre. Um, and so I'd like to think that's the future. Um, I think in my country, in Australia, I think it's still very focused on revenue and margin and 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 to be very fair a disinvestment by governments over many years in the universities which has forced the universities to then need to enroll international students in order to keep the lights on in order to cross subsidize the research in order to build a new building in order to provide the services and again that cross subsidization is unfortunate, I think, and it then, it then traps us in this country into a particular way of thinking about international, which, which, is, which is more commercially driven. Thank you. Thanks so much, um, Douglas. We could talk to you forever. Um, but we'd be really delighted if you could uh, come back and talk to us again on other aspects and other dimensions of international um, there were lots of different questions and things that I wanted to ask you that we, we haven't got to uh, today. But just to say thank you very much. It's really been, um, it's been fascinating to hear from you and, and particularly to hear from the perspectives from somebody who's, who's worked in, in different countries and in, in different places uh, that, um, and how the, the, there are some similarities, how there, is, there are many differences as, as well. So thank you very much. And uh, we wish you well, and we hope to talk to you again soon. No worries. Look, thank you so much for the opportunity to come and talk. As you can tell, I'm a good talker, so always happy to chew the cud on international higher education with you two. Thank you. Thank you very much.